Let's take our Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And as you turn there, let me bow together in a word of prayer. Bow with me in a word of prayer this morning. Let's pray. Father, I, as we come now and, and approach your word, Lord, let us do it with humility. Let us do it in a way, Lord, we, where we don't know the things that we ought to know. But I pray, Lord, that you would change our thinking, you would transform our minds, so we would be a people who do know the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I pray, Lord, that our ears would be attentive, that our minds would be ready to soak up and our wills would be changed because of what your word teaches us. And I pray, Lord, it would change our walk. It would cause us to live victoriously, to reign over our sin, and to learn how to give thanks and praise to your name even in the most difficult circumstances. Lord, all these things in Scripture are contrary to the flesh. They're contrary to the world. And Satan doesn't even want us to know them. But I pray, Lord, that you would embed them upon our heart so your will would be done in our lives. So we could, in the end, be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. That we, in the end, Lord, when the smoke clears and the shots are done being fired, we would be standing strong in the Lord. I pray this for us today in Christ's name. Amen. Looking at now at this last section of Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 20 through the verse 23. Let's look at verse number 19 through 23. It says this. What is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We've been looking at this last section about how God's power worked in Christ. And so scripture shows us what God worked in Christ. And the reason we need to grasp this is because It is the same power that is at work in believers right now. It's at work in your life who know Christ as their Lord and Savior. Remember, all spiritual blessing has been given unto us, those who have been chosen by the Father, those who have been redeemed by the Son, and those who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And in this last section of Ephesians, it's a prayer request. It's a prayer request not only for the churches of Asia Minor, but it's a prayer request for all believers. In fact, we ought to be praying it. And the prayer here is the prayer of enlightenment, that we would grow in our understanding about what God has done and how God is working with His power in your life. 
Now, I just recently, uh, I'm interested in outer space stuff. I, I love astronomy. I love all that kind of, st- all those kind of things. And, and recently, the Curiosity Mars rover left Earth 25 November 2011 for an eight-month, 352-million-mile journey to Mars, arriving August 7th, uh, 2012. Not too long ago, it arrived. So the flight controllers at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory anxiously watched while the rover entered the atmosphere of Mars, and it took 13.8 minutes to get a confirmation that it actually touched down. And finally, they're waiting in great anticipation. And on uh, August 7th at 10.32 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, or uh, excuse me, West Coast Time, and then uh, 1.32 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, it landed. Uh, An amazing feat in an unparalleled technological triumph of the one-ton nuclear-powered rover the size of a small car as it was lowered to the surface of Mars on the end of a 25-foot-long bridle suspended from the belly of a rocket-powered flying crane. Sounds like a comic book not reality, and it, of course, landed on the surface of Mars. Curiosity, which, which is it's the name of the rover, is a nuclear-powered vehicle. It's not a solar-powered one. They did solar power. It didn't work because the Martian dust covered the panels to the point where it couldn't be used anymore. In fact, the, lo- the last one they put up there is stuck in the sand somewhere so they had to send another one up and so I just wanted to look at this in, in this sense that it's it's powered by four kilograms of plutonium 238 producing 110 watts of continuous power from its multi mission radioscopy uh, radio um, well anyway thermoelectric generator. We don't understand it all anyway, so it doesn't matter. But essentially, what I'm saying is it's a nuclear battery that converts electricity into energy. It, can, it, can, it, it converts uh, heat into energy, excuse me, into electricity. And so this MRTG, which of course they refer to as produces 125 watts of electrical power at the start of the mission, uh, falling to 100 watts of power 14 years later. Now, I say that for this reason, because I've been talking about the power that is at work in us. If it wasn't for this nuclear battery, Curiosity really was created with a powerful power source, not a solar one, but a nuclear-powered one, that it could accomplish its $2.5 billion mission. And that's pretty much to drill into 
holes into the surface of Mars to get geological information to find out whether there was water there and it supported life at one point in the universe's history. Hmm. But without that nuclear battery, it could not do the mission without it being powered by an endless continuous power source lasting up to 14 years, which is way past the, the mission objective. And in fact, that's the minimal lifespan. I was thinking that we too, as believers, in verse number 19, it is telling us what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe that God is not doing this towards everyone. He is doing it towards us who believe. In other words, God's power is working in us. If you look over to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 20, again he brings it up and he says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, so, so he is the author, Paul, is stressing in this book that he wants to get into Christians' minds. This understanding that, listen, you have the power of God in you to live and to do His good will. You were once in complete spiritual darkness, steeped in the trespasses of your own sins, and yet God now, by the Word of God and His Spirit, is flooding your heart with light so you understand who you are and what God has done for you because you are now one of His kids. So the prayer request here is that your eyes may be opened more and more to spiritual knowledge so that you understand what God has done that you may understand your new identity in Christ, that you may understand in our passage that we're going to look at today that the Holy Spirit wants us to see God's power is exerted towards believers and in believers. The last time we started to look at this, uh, how God has demonstrated His power towards us who believe, we saw in verse number 19, and 20, that God's power is exerted in Christ's resurrection. That's what we looked at last time. Verse 19, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That's what we looked at already. And what a display of power the resurrection of Christ was. When all the forces of evil and of hell, when death and the grave were trying to hold him, trying to keep him down, and he was raised by what? By the mighty power of God. That death could not hold him, and he rose triumphantly from the grave. Now remember, for you and I, death will not be able to hold you either. Not because of you, not because of anything, any strength you have, but completely because of the power of God. So God's power is life-giving, and His power is put to use towards us in several different ways. And I said last time, it's put to use towards us in that it, in Ephesians 2.5, it makes us alive. It says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, 
made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So the very fact that you and I are believers, if you indeed are a believer, it is solely because of the demonstration of God's mighty power that many things had to be overcome to conquer the flesh and to conquer the world system and to conquer Satan that was against you. By the strength of God, it had to be done in order for you and I to become a believer. Also, believers have this power working in them. If it were not for the power of God in believers, we would not have a desire to study the Word of God. We would not have a desire to pray. That we would not have a desire to have the strength to put off our sin and to finally put it to death. We would not have the desire to want to put on righteousness so we would be able to please the Lord in the things that we do. We would not be able to stand strong in the Lord against the spiritual wickedness that is against us and the spiritual battle that we're in and that if you don't know you're in, you are in as a believer and if you haven't felt that battle yet, you will feel it. And so you see the apostle is not praying that believers see their need of this power, nor is he praying that believers have more power. We have all the power that we're going to get. He is praying that believers would realize that they would understand the greatness of the power of God already working in them. Now, this, this is an incredible truth, and we don't grasp it as we should. We really don't grasp this as we should. Philippians says it like this, For it is God who is at work in you. What? For what reason? Both to will and to work His good pleasure in you, through you, by His power, not your own. We, we, we too often think that the Christian life, we, we think of it solely in terms that we're forgiven. And as long as we're forgiven, then everything is all right. So we tend to do that. When we conclude it like that, we tend to live the Christian life the best we can. Don't you think that? I'm doing the best I can in my Christian walk. Well, that could really be traced back to a thinking about, well, I'm forgiven. I've, I've, I've asked Christ to save me. I'm a believer. Um, I love the Lord. And so therefore, I'm doing the best I can. But see, this is altogether incorrect thinking because it is impossible not only to be saved by your own power, but it is impossible to live the Christian life under your own strength. Or by your own strength. You see, by nature, not one of us would or could believe the gospel. Nothing but the power of God could make us believers. But it is also the self-same power that we continue in in the Christian life. Are you living under the power of God? Are you living by the power of God? Do you see the results of the power of God in your life? See, so then believers are being urged here to depend on this power, to realize this inexhaustible source of strength. And he prays 
that we may know fully and that we may appropriate, appropriate it personally and that we may learn in experience the measureless might that is the exceeding greatness of the power of God he is exerting towards us who believe. He's not exerting it towards anyone but believers. But, see, if you're not convinced, if you somehow are not grasping it yet, how vast God's power is and how it is available to you and in you, then he goes on in the passage. And in today I want to pick it up in verse number uh, 19. And then this is the second thing. Uh, because the resurrection of Christ led to Christ's ascension and enthronement and his present heavenly reign. So secondly, we see, and the word of God wants us to see, God's power exerted in Christ's exaltation. Look what it says in verse number 19. That the Father exalted Christ. These are in accordance with the working of his strength, the strength of his might, verse 20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and then, notice, seated him at the right hand, at his right hand in the heavenly places. So under the power of God, that the resurrection over death, over hell, over Satan, took Christ once and for all, forever, into the presence of God. He blazed the trail for us his children into the presence of God. And what did he do with him there? He seated him, giving him a position of authority, and that he also did it at his right hand, giving Christ special honor and privilege that he did not have in this sense as the God-man, as the one who accomplished the mission for his children and now is done, is finished with it, and is now seated because the job is done at the right hand of the Father, exalted there. So Jesus took his seat at the right hand, and he is seated there still right now until he comes back again. He's coming back again, but while he's, we're awaiting the return of the Lord, and that's what we're doing, we're waiting for Jesus to come. We're living in light of his coming. What is he doing in heaven right now? He's reigning and ruling. Jesus spoke like this in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in what? Heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, that the exaltation of Jesus Christ gives us the power of God to go and do the work of God and bring the gospel to those who have not yet heard it. He is also in heaven, not only reigning, but he's calling a people to himself. In Acts chapter 1, he is interceding for his people, where Paul writes in Romans, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Now, that means this, if Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and he is exalted, what about us? We're, we're in Christ. We'll look over to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 6. Notice what it says. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So he, 
the writer of Paul is, is getting, wanting the church to begin to think, listen, wait a minute, you, you're described, believers are described in Ephesians in, in really two ways. Number one, you're already, we are already seated in the heavenlies. All the work has been done for us, right? But at the same time, we're, we're looked at like this in Ephesians, we're walking with Christ on earth, and we are fighting against our enemy. That's what he's going to get at in chapter 4 through chapter 6. That we are already in the heavenlies, and yet at the same time, we are still on earth. And so therefore, he wants us to understand the things that have already been taken care of for us in Christ Jesus. So the emphasis in Ephesians is on the present that we are redeemed, that we are raised, that we are in the heavenlies. That see, so believers should always be living in the reality of the present, keeping in mind the past, and of course, always looking forward to the future. We're always living and thinking in that realm. So why should we do this? Well, believers are given all the practical injunctions for godly living in this present, present reality. Again, the power of Christ to live the Christian life. Why? Because Christ was exalted. We are already exalted with him, yet in God's plan, it's right, it's how theologians say the already and not yet, right? That this is already true of us. We're already there with the Lord, and that's all accomplished. But in the power of God, he leaves us here to do his work, to sanctify us, to make us into the image of Jesus Christ so he can take us to glory and where we will be finally perfected. So see, the power of God is displayed in the exaltation of Christ. A third thing, a third demonstration of God's power is found in verse 21, that God's power is exerted in subjection of all powers to Christ. If you look at verse 21, it says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And it says, and he put all things in subjection under his feet. That this third demonstration of the power of God is in looking at Christ, that he is, number one, it says in our passage, he, is, he has complete authority over all rule, all rule in the universe. That means that he's first in rank over all powers, seen and unseen. This is who our, our Christ is. And then it says that he also has all authority uh, over the levels of power in the universe. In other words, Christ has the power to act, and he has the freedom to act in the realm of whatever level of powers there are in the universe because all the levels of power in the universe have been created by him. So he has, therefore, authority over them, and then he has also, Christ has the authority over the greater powers that exist, the angelic realm that exists the good and the evil in the universe and over every dominion of ruling power that is out there, Christ is over all of them. In other words, all these terms are stacked up for us to express 
to believers and to show that Christ's position in the heavenlies is above every kind of power that exists. His position is higher and greater and to every power that can be imagined. Every power that is known and unknown, hostile and friendly. And because we are in Christ, we also have authority over those powers. In this sense, that when we are walking in the Lord, that we are going to be able to, up, to stand up against spiritual wickedness in high places. We're going to be able to do that in God's power. Why? Because Christ has already power over those things. And then not only that, just in case uh, we didn't get that, it says in verse number 21, it says, in also every name that is named that he is over, the comprehensive supremacy of Jesus Christ in the present is given in this sense that he is over every name that is named. You know that when Adam gave names to the animals, what did it show? It showed his authority. It showed his supremacy over the animal kingdom. Here God is the subject of the passage, and he is the namer. He's the one who gives the name. When God gave new names to Abram, and when God gave a new name to Jacob and called him Israel, that God gave names even to the stars that he created in the universe, where it says in Psalm 147, he counts the number of the stars and he gives names to all of them. Now, that's, that to me is an incredible thought that the Lord would do that, but it just shows his authority, his supremacy over all, every name that is named uh, in the universe, in our world in world history and Philippians puts it like this for this reason also gave God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name and you know that if it's not by the name of Jesus Christ no one could be saved it's by that name that people are saved right rescued uh, unto salvation see so he is stacking these things up so we have confidence before we practice them in what God has actually done in the present, that he has authority in all these areas. And then, if you notice in verse number 21 and 22, he has this, this is a continue, continued victorious supremacy that he has. Christ is above all powers that wish to rob us of our spiritual benefits. Every ruling power in heaven and earth is inferior to Christ. At the end of verse 21, there's this phrase, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. In fact, this little phrase right here is really a Jew the Jewish concept of time. This is how time is broken up. It's divided into this, this age and the age to come. Now, we're still in this age. But there is an age to come. And that Jesus Christ not only has authority now, even though we don't always see that authority, because we can't see into the invisible realm of things, but Christ is saying it to us, He does have that authority, and someday we will see that authority visibly when it comes to the age to come. See, the point is that the supremacy of Christ not only belongs to this age, but also that which is to come. In fact, 
the future age has always been viewed in the Bible as the age to come. He said, what age is that? I believe it's the Messianic age, as Duane read about this morning. It's a time when Messiah will rule with justice and put down all other powers and authorities that oppose him. That's where he starts it off. He starts it off with the millennial reign of Christ on earth, which leads into the end where Christ fights the final battles. He puts down all evil. Satan, false prophet, are cast into uh, hell, uh, the lake of fire. All those he judges are cast into the lake of fire. All the enemies against Christ in all of time in the universe are subdued and put down. And Christ brings in a new heaven and a new earth where what righteousness dwells, right? Righteousness is there. That's what he's doing. That's what he's done for us. And he wants us to know that. In fact, when you read through the Gospels, you get this sense that uh, the Jews did have this, this age and the age to come in mind where when Jesus is having a conversation and then in Mark 10, he says, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or farms, for my sake and for the sake of the gospel. But he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. Houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and farms, along with persecutions, and the age to come, eternal life. So even Jesus designates these two particular ages that is going to, consummate his whole plan for the salvation of his children and despite the defeat of the world's world rulers now the world rulers of darkness in this present age they still have considerable control over individuals and nations that's why if you turn to ephesians chapter 6 and i someday i'll get there it says in verse number 12 it says for our struggle, Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against that. Did you know that? That it's not against flesh and blood? But look what it says. But against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. So the word of God is telling us, listen, whereas the age to come, their ruling control will be a thing of the past. Why is that? Because in Ephesians 1.21, he puts all things in subjection under his feet. All enemies will be overthrown. Christ is victorious. And of course, this, he's, he's grabbing this from the Psalms in Psalm 110 where it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And of course, that was usually the picture of the conquering kings, how conquering kings showed their triumph by placing a foot upon the neck of the conquered king in front of publicly, doing it publicly. So Jesus will put his foot on the neck of all his enemies and this crushing, of course, by Christ's power will be, will be done with ease. So that means believers have no need to fear the present. We also have no need to fear the future. So in a very real way, Ephesians is trying to 
eliminate from our life this concept of fearing things that Christ has already taken care of. Even fearing being in the spiritual battle. Even fearing overcoming sin. Even fearing the struggles that we're going to have in this life. Even facing the weaknesses of our flesh right into the day we close our eyes in death. It's the same thing that Paul was saying in Romans 8 in verse 38 and 39, passages that we know pretty well, where Paul said to them, I am convinced. Are you convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, if we're going to walk the way we ought to walk, we have to know this. This is the doctrinal section of Ephesians. And remember, it is broken up into two sections. The doctrinal is the right belief, and the chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 6, the right living, the orthopraxy. So we cannot live right until we understand these foundational doctrinal truths that the Lord has given us in the Word of God to convince us, to assure us, to encourage us that we can live this Christian life because the power of God has been exerted in the resurrection of Christ, in the exaltation of Christ, and in the subjection of all powers, both seen and unseen, to Christ our Lord. And if He is the victory and He's done that, then we're victorious already. We are victorious already. And just one last thing in verse number 22 and 23, that the power of God is exerted in Christ being given the head of over everything to the church. Now, I'll not expand on this one because the rest of Ephesians will be dealing with it. But if you notice, it's saying that Christ has headship over his body. It says in verse 22, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, there are several metaphors that Ephesians also uses that describe the church. This church is described as a building with its cornerstones and its foundation. The church is described as a family or called the household of God. And the church is compared in Ephesians 5 with a bride. And the church is used as an analogy of the body. And this is the one, this is the one used here for this purpose to enable us, to, to get us to think, to get us to understand the deep relationship and the, and the intimate connection that we have with Jesus Christ. Like in the Gospels, Jesus says, uh, I am the vine, you're the branches, right? The branches don't receive any life at all unless it's connected to the vine. You know what happens when you cut off branches from a vine or a tree? They die, right? It's the same thing. The Lord is saying the body has many parts to it, intricately connected to each other in such a way that it works in unity. The connection is intimate. It's organic. It's vital. It's living. And we as his body are connected to the head which is Christ. That Christ has the position of the head and of course uh, he has authority over the, head, uh, over the body 
and we are connected to him. And so Christ as the head of the church is the center of the life of the church. That's why Christ is the central theme of the whole Word of God, especially the church. That the body has no life apart from the head. Also, Christ without the church has something missing too, according to Ephesians. So the picture draws our attention to the close relationship of Christ to his people. How intimate could it be that if you have a head on your body, then your, body is, your head is controlling your body in some respects, but if I lop off your head, both die. Both become insignificant. Both cannot work. There's no power there. So the Lord is using this particular metaphor to say, listen, Christ is the head. He's the authority. He's calling the shots. He can be trusted. He's done all the work for us. And he's calling a body of believers together from all walks of life, from all of the world, in all time. And this is a picture of Christ, we, us being connected to the head in such an intimate way that the picture draws our attention to this close, intimate relationship that Christ has to his people. So he's going to be hammering this particular point all through Ephesians because he wants us to get it. He wants us to begin to see it in that particular way. That he is united to us and we are united to him. And then in the, at the end of verse number 23, very difficult passage of scripture, it says, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There's like that five interpretations to that little last section of this passage. And I'm not going to give you all of them right now, that's for sure. But I'll tell you this. I believe where it's falling is here, where it says the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's, in other words, God, God's fullness which fills Christ is filling the church. That's God's fullness that is filling Christ is filling the church. He's filling the church with his word. He's filling the church with his power. He's filling the church with everything it needs that the church would be, in Ephesians 5, presented before God, holy and blameless, without spot, without wrinkle. He's doing everything so that takes place. In fact, John Calvin said this, drawing from Ephesians chapter 5, the bride provides fullness to the groom. The bride complements the groom, completes the groom. And so the church gives glory to the head. We once didn't do that, but as the Lord works in us by the power of God and we become more and more like Christ, the church begins to give glory to the one where glory is due, and that is Jesus Christ himself. So Scripture wants us Christians to know that Christ's power over all things is for us. And if that's for us, who can be against us? So we will live in triumph that because he lived triumphantly. It, it's all a demonstration, really, of the extraordinary love God has for his people. Giving Christ to the church. And he brings that up in the, the latter chapters, that how we're to understand the, the height and the depth and the length and the width of the, of the love of Christ. Do we understand 
the love of Christ the way the scripture describes it? Do we, do we have that kind of in-depth knowledge? We don't. But he wants us to have it. And when you know someone's loved you to this extent, then that's when chapter 4 kicks in of, of Ephesians where our part is to exercise the power already working in us. That our spiritual muscles, if I may say it like that, are to be exercised with the Word of God so we don't become atrophied, so we don't become flabby, so we become useful. See, Christian living is based on Christian learning. So, for the church, he starts off in chapter 1 and ends in chapter 3 that the, he prays that the church would be enlightened in chapter 1. And at the end of chapter 3, he, play, he prays that the church would be enabled. Enlightened and enabled to what? To use their spiritual muscles with the power of God. Why? So they can be strong in the Lord. So they can put to sin death. They can put their sin to death. So they can put off their lusts and their desires that they always were able to, wanting to do. So they can walk worthy. So they can live differently, not as the Gentiles used to live in the fertility of their mind, calloused minds, unresponsive to God, but differently, responding to the Lord, alive because we're connected to the head, and then to walk lovingly. You think you know how to love people and love the way the Lord does? You don't. But God wants you to learn how to do that, and he wants you to go and show his light in that way. And then in chapter 5, to walk wisely. To learn how to walk circumspect, redeeming the time because, because the days are evil. Learning how to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Learning how to rejoice and be thankful in all things, for all, in all circumstances. See, that has to be done in the power of God. It cannot be done in our own power. And then the most practical things in Ephesians 5, to submit the practical to the, to the practical relationships we have. Wives submitting to their husbands. Husbands loving their wives. Children being obedient to parents. Servants and masters learning how to function in a controlling role in a way that Christ would. And then ultimately chapter 6, learning how to resist the devil to walk a warfare walk. To be a good soldier of Jesus Christ so you can be strong in, in the Lord and put on the whole armor of God, right? To be able to stand. Putting on Christ, that is. See, that's what he's doing in chapter 1. He's making us ready in chapter 1, 2, and 3 for walking in this world while we know we're exalted with Christ in the heavenlies. At the same time, that's going on in our mind. We know the battle is won. We know nothing can be against us unless Christ allows it. We know that we can't even die unless Christ allows us to die. See, you're immortal until God's finished with you. You realize that, right? So wherever he calls you to, to go, wherever part of the world he may call you, he may call you someday to a place that you wouldn't ever think of going to minister the gospel to a people that need it. And you may feel afraid there. You may go to a place where You'll feel, feel weak and vulnerable, but the power of Christ is there with you to accomplish the work that he's called you to. So, the point is certainly this. This is what God has done for us. 
and that is the imperative, that is the indicative, and the imperative that we're going to get to in chapter 4 is this, what you're called to be. That's the operative word from chapter 4 on. It's, we're called to walk. Believers who do not know his wealth in Christ will never be able to walk for Christ. And I believe this is the difference when we understand this, that your whole walk with Christ changes. You don't live in your own strength, by your own willpower, by someone that you know or about the money that you have, anything that can give you power or influence. You don't live by that anymore. You live by the power and influence that Christ gives you to overcome all things. See, that's what he's done. I pray the Spirit of God would convince us of it so we would do it. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you again for your great love to us. Lord, if we did not know these things, matter of fact, Lord, when we don't know these things, how we flounder, how we get tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, how we are depressed because our sin is still reigning over us, at least we're letting it reign over us. How unthankful we are and how quickly we lose our contentment when we don't know these things. Lord, I pray by your Spirit you would embed these upon our heart and make us strong in the Lord to accomplish everything you desire and your will desires for our life. And we know, Lord, one part of your will, your revealed prescriptive will, is to make us into the image of Christ and to present us holy someday before the Father. Thank you, Lord, that you're going to do that. Lord, convince us of these doctrinal truths so we can be children who walk victoriously in this world, even though the flesh still remains and temptation is still real, even though, Lord, the world is going in the opposite direction, and even though... Minions of demons are against your church, but we know they will not prevail against it. So we praise you, Lord, for what you've done. Now let us learn it well so we can practice it. And I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, let's stand together.